Hi, I'm Andrew Sheps, and welcome to episode one of the Andrew Talks to Awesome People podcast. As I explained in the uh, intro episode, these interviews were recorded once the lockdown started in uh, March of 2020, and they were very informal and done live streaming. The audio quality is not great. Uh, They're meant to be very informal conversations, and it's only a podcast because we've had so many requests for people who'd like to be able to listen where they don't have to stream it off of one of the platforms that still has it archived. So um, I do apologize in advance for some of the audio quality, but the content is amazing. Uh, This is the first episode, and it's a very conservative length of around an hour, talking to an amazing producer out of Memphis, Matt Rossbang. Um, I'm not going to give you a whole lot of background, because if you listen for the next hour, you'll know everything there is to know about him. So here we go, episode one. Enjoy. So, Matt Rossbang. Yes, sir. You live in Memphis? Live in Memphis, Tennessee. Which is a hotbed of music and has been for a very, very long time. Yeah. And I've, you, I've, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that you are, from what I know, a, a historian of the Memphis scene. You seem to know not only everything about what's gone on there, but you know a lot of the musicians who are still around, you may not even be playing anymore, but you work with them, you know them, you hang out with them. And also, uh, if people don't know, you started your career at, did you start at Sun Studios? Was that your first gig? Yeah. So started at Sun Studios as an assistant and then basically took over the studio and completely rebuilt it. And do you want to talk about that for a second? Because that is fascinating. So Tell them what Sun Studios is and then what you did when you got in there. Yeah, so Sun Studio is kind of, um, well, they call it the birthplace of rock and roll, but it was uh, built in 1950 by Sam Phillips. And he, uh, he had a love for music, and particularly a lot of the black music that was coming out of Memphis that no one was really paying attention to or releasing. We had Beale Street, which is kind of like um uh, in, in a in kind of like the Vegas or like the wild wild west of the South. I mean, anything kind of went on down there, and you would have Ike Turner, Helen Wolf, BB King, the Memphis Jug Band, all these guys playing down there. And, and Sam just fell in love with this music, and no one was kind of re- tapping into it. And so he built this little studio on a dream, first recording studio in Memphis, and he recorded all these guys. And he didn't have a label at the time, so he would sell them to Chess Records or RPM or VJ, some of the big record labels then. And by 1952, he thought he should start his own. So he started Sun Records. And that's when he kind of discovered what we know as rock and roll. Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, uh, Carl Perkins, um, Conway Twitty started there and really uh, recorded all those guys. And in about nine years, he recorded a millennium's worth of music and, and pioneered a lot of recording techniques like Slapback Echo, along with Les Paul and others. Um, and then he went on and did kind of several other things in the audio world. But the studio is still around. It's it's kind of like a living museum. And they record every night starting at 6. And so I got to record there when I was 14. And I watched the engineer at the time uh, try to make us sound good. Because, we A, we had no reason to be there. Uh, uh, and we did not sound good. And he uh, um, worked really hard to make us sound good and make us feel like we should be there. And watching him work the board and he was just the coolest guy in the room. It just, that's all I wanted to do since that time. So I started interning with him when I was 16 and I I worked there for about 11 years before I went independent. And did you know the music 
before you had even gone in at 14? Or is that what really started you becoming like a, a historian of it? I was more, my parents have really great taste in music and I loved the records that they were always playing at that point. And that was transitioning from, you know, cassettes to CDs. And like, we didn't have a CD player for a long time because they were so expensive. So we still were buying cassettes and stuff. And I was making like little mixtapes off the radio. Um, but uh, when I recorded it, son, I of course knew who some of these guys were, but I don't think I fully appreciated them. But the great part about my internship was because it is a rare in the sense that it's a, it's a museum during the day, I became a tour guide during the day. So I would get out of high school and I would go straight to the studio and I gave tours to um, people from all over the world till about six o'clock at night. And then I'd start interning in the studio and I did that for years. And so I quickly learned all the history and that, and I've always had a love for, for history and looking on the back of records and seeing who did what and tying the names together. And so that really led into the rest of like what you mentioned at the beginning was the tying of all the other Memphis great history and stuff like that. But yeah, given being a tour guide really made me appreciate and realize how much of the music that came out of Memphis, but all the music that we love that was inspired by Memphis musicians and stuff. And so that was a big part of it. Now, so I, we don't have to go too far down this rabbit hole, but when you listed the artists that Sam put out on his label, yeah. they were all white artists playing black music, basically. Yeah. So was that kind of, I mean, because I know that was really prevalent from the 30s on up, was you find some white people to play some black music and it gets more popular and it's not necessarily more pop music, because the music wasn't even changed that much, but it was that was a thing that happened. Was Sam a proponent of that or did he see that as something he, and I'm asking, cause I know you, you know, the family and yeah. I'm just curious what you take. Was that well, something he did cause he thought that's what he should do or just he felt like it's the only way people were gonna listen to the music? The Sam moved to Memphis strictly because of pretty much the black musicians he heard on Beale Street. He grew up in Alabama and he was a sharecropper's son and he loved, he grew up li listening to the the black farmers in the field singing hymns and going to the black churches and stuff. So that music is always what really spoke to him first, more than how much for that puppy dog in the window <laughs> and the really white stuff at the time. And he, he came to Memphis on a field trip with some friends. I think they were going to a Bible study, like a Bible tent thing. And they stopped in Memphis and they got in at four in the morning and they drove past Beale street. And, and I kind of hinted at it, but Beale street was the only place in the South that, that black people could go and essentially let their hair down. Uh, whites weren't allowed on Beale Street. There was, you know, brothels, bars, gambling. Allowed or it just was an unofficial uh, rule? Officially, we're not allowed. Actually, there, on a side note, one of the great early wrestlers, Sputnik Monroe, uh, who was white, went to, he didn't care who if you were black or white. So he went down there to drink with some of his black friends and the cops got called and he punched them out. And then they were, he said, you're going to need more cops. And they just let him be because he was so, so big, but um, uh, Beale Street's changed a lot now. It's very touristy. But Sam saw this at four in the morning and thought, "This is what this is where music, the soul of the music is. This is the rhythm and the feeling, is all there." And when he first started recording these black artists like Hal and Wolf, they would come in and play the music they thought the white man in the suit would want to hear. You know, like "Goodnight Irene" or something. And he said, "No, I want." He said he spent hours making them feel at home till he heard, you know, "Moaning at Midnight" or. 3am blues, the real raw gut bucket stuff. And that's what he loved. And he was licensing that to other labels. 
And this whole time he said there was a, a, a sound he heard in his head that he couldn't figure out what it was. And that later became, that was, it was rock and roll. So he, he never lost the love of black artists. He put several black artists out on Sun and he continued to record them through the 50s. But, I mean, to be on the cusp of this new fad, I mean, it must have been wild. And so, and he was a one-man operation, essentially. Um, so he really kind of had to tunnel vision on the stuff that was actually really, really selling there for a while. So to be geeky, because I think everybody wants us to be geeky, can you just describe Sun? Because, I mean, it's untouched physically, yeah. mm -hmm. right? So can you describe the, the physical layout of it, sort of the logistics of recording a full band there, which you do all, did all the time, and he did yeah. all the time. Shooting was live, no overdubs. Um, so what, what was the setup, and what was it like to actually work in that setup? uh and that's what's great is you guys can come visit sun studio pretty much well not right now but uh yeah. you, you eventually will be able to nice this, one, nice. this, <laughs> this is all over but uh it was a three-room building next to a cafe it was a bakery for a while so it had a tin roof sam came in and he had had a long career earlier in radio so he would record big band music live to disc on the air so he knew his way around microphones he knew his way around electronics and acoustics uh, and, and as you know, Andrew, and we're talking 1950, there was no um, Tom Hidley, there was no famous, Bill Putnam was getting started, but there wasn't famous acoustic designs or theories or way to build Fair. studios. It was all repurposed radio equipment and kind of, especially, Mem I mean, Memphis has always been the way kind of just throwing up stuff, but he put down a live tile floor and he used the, the straight drill acoustic tiles you see all the time in schools and stuff. And the main tracking room is about 18 by 30. Uh, and then the control room is extremely small. Um, and it's got a little bathroom back there. And when he first started, it was direct to disc. Uh, by 51 or two, we had magnetic tape. So he had a, he had a Presto machine, but he spent a big chunk of money he didn't really have by 53 he bought a rca 76 series a radio board and it was four microphone inputs mono out no echo sense no oxes obviously no pans just no foreign EQ. no eq right. he didn't own any eq that's a big misconception that some people think he had eq but he had no eq and he bought two ampex tape machines uh, 350s one he recorded to and another one was a safety machine or to bounce stuff but then he quickly learned how to do slapback echo. So he used two Ampexes and he only had a handful of microphones. The nicest mic he had was an Altec M11, which is a Coke bottle. It's the first American condenser microphone. It's really cool. Got a glass capsule. And he had RCA 77, ElectroVoice 666, and a Shure 55. And that's really about it. And he made all those records in a small room, all live, four mics to one. And originally how he did the echo, was since there are no effect sins, no aux sins, let's say you've got your singer, you're singing into a Shure 55, the famous kind of Elvis mic. He would have another mic farther away, like a foot back, whatever he wanted to get the most echo up. And that would go sh directly to the second Ampex machine. And the Ampex returned into one of the channels on the, on the RCA. So the RCA had four mic inputs, but two program inputs. So he kind of had two line levels in there. But that's how he did the echo for a long time until he figured out how to wire a bleeder scene, which is basically an aux in without a control over it. Um, but that's how he did echo. And you can hear those records, and that's what's really cool is he would decide if he wanted to really echo the drums or the vocal or both or by, by moving that echo mic around. 
Right, right. So single source that was not any of the microphones you're actually hearing on the record. It's just placed in the room mm -hmm. for what wanted to go there. That's amazing. Yeah, that's how he kind of stumbled upon it and did it for a long time till he got a great second engineer, Cowboy Jack Clement, who went on to become a, a pretty famous producer himself. Cowboy started there, and Cowboy's the one who really like pushed to do like basic overdubs at the time, which you know would be to block the erase head and do sound on sound and bounce and stuff and, and get a little more out there. But Sam Sam pretty much stayed with the that four mic thing. Even later in the 70s when he recorded, he would just do it live to two track. Even though they had a 16 track, he would just, he would still want to go to two track live. Right. So. so just stereo live done. Yeah. Put it on, yeah. put it on the wax. <laughs> Why not? So um, you, You've once told me that when you would be recording bands there, you would get the drum sound by what it sounded like coming into the back of the vocal mic. Yeah. So you talk about that for a second, because I think I think that's pretty uh, ridiculously brave and awesome. And and that, you know, I I feel so lucky that I started at Sun because um, you know we didn't have a lot of um, you know it was years before I worked on like a Neumann microphone or or an Eve Pre or API, the things that we kind of think of as standards in, in this world. It, I didn't work on those things for 10, 12 years till I started working outside of Sun. Uh, but when you're in a room with a whole band and you have your vocalist eight feet from the drummer, w there are times we would overdub the vocal by necessity, but there were, but you know, so much of the great vocal takes are done live and that's how people want to record, especially there, that you have to make it sound good. You can't make the drum sound like, a washy cardboard box, unless that's the thing <laughs> that feels good at the time. And you want the vocals to be there. And so, you know, uh, like a SM7, which I use a lot on vocals there, has great rejection, uh, but the snare drum doesn't sound as great, in, in Sun at least, uh, through the SM7 vocal mic. Uh, but like RCA77, which I use a lot in vocal, would make this big, fat, wallopy snare sound even though it was five feet away. And I, I, on a side note, I, the, the most times people have ever, uh, I've kind of calculated this in my head because, you know, uh, I don't get a whole lot of compliments on my mix. <laughs> but whenever people like reach out to me later and go, man, the snare drum on that record sounds amazing. It's always when I never had a mic on it and it's what's coming through the vocal mic. And there was, I couldn't, I, that's the best I could do with, you know what I mean? It was something I couldn't, almost out of my control, but, but yeah, depending on what you did with the vocal mic and where you put it would really affect the drum sound. And once you wrap your head around that, it's pretty amazing. And then you can do that instant, you can know when to do that and when not to do that and how to change it and stuff. And I think that that's a big thing is that when you know you're not gonna have control over it later, you have to make sure it's absolutely good now. Whereas mm -hmm. you can think like, oh, I'm spending a lot of time on the drum sound, but you also know you can mess with it later if you're close miking and it's isolated and stuff. So you're not really taking as much care with it. Whereas when you're talking about the sound of the drums in the vocal mic, there can't be anything more important because you know you can't go mess with the sound of the vocal to make the drums sound good. Yeah. So you got to get it right. You got to get it right. And, and it's funny because, you know, uh, it's still to this day when I'm mixing something I didn't record that someone else did. I don't just start with the drums because I'm so used to like, well, you can make a snare sound good. But when you put that vocal mic up, Lord, you know, who knows what it's going to sound like. So it I always kind of start with vocal. it all up. Even though, even, even if they track them in boosts and stuff, it, uh, just out of creature of habit kind of thing. Right. So um, 
so you were there for a long time, 11 years. Mm -hmm. You took over as the main engineer for how long? Uh, I took over about five years in. I took over as the main engineer and then was the main engineer for about five years before I went independent. Right. And I mean, and another thing about that studio, which is something that people who've been lucky enough to go work in studios for the most part don't have to deal with, is because it's a museum, you had to tear down your session every day. You couldn't mm -hmm. leave up, right? That studio had to be like nothing had ever happened the night before. Yeah, and you didn't want to leave stuff up because, uh, I mean, like when I was the assistant, the other engineer was, you know, he'd been doing it for 30 years. So he was getting a little more lackadaisical. And if there was a session he wanted to leave stuff up on that, you know, I would have to do what he says. And like SM81 or something is quite easy to steal. And when you have 500 people coming through the studio a day, we had stuff stolen or, and anyways, like, you, you know, if it's like a, it's like an Airbnb, you know, if you had a bunch of people Airbnb in your house, you're going to go back through it anyways and clean the clean stuff. Even if they said they didn't go in the kitchen, you're going to, you know, buy a new toothbrush or whatever. <laughs> so I would, I would, I prefer to tear down. And you, you know, this from doing it for so long, tearing down is such like a med meditation, like Zen like thing of wrapping cables. You're done for the day. You don't have to listen to stuff. You can clear your mind or think about things. And, I think that that there's this fear, like if you're not done, like let's say you're going to go back the next day and do more of the same thing you've been doing that day. There's, yeah. the, I'm just always terrified that it's not going to sound as good the next day if I try and do it from scratch. Like I've somehow found the magic and I'll never find it again. I'm just going to be comparing it to the day before. And yeah, it's, I tend to like, oh, don't touch it. Don't touch it. But it's a great freeing thing to just say, this is what we're doing today and we'll do something else tomorrow. Yeah, and and um, even when we're like, you know, I can still I could still leave the the control room set up because the tourists didn't go in the control room. So technically, I leave the mic present everything set the way they were, and I I wouldn't touch those too much. But uh, you know, how many times in a session uh, that we don't see does the guy the guitar player kick over the fifty seven on accident by his amp, or the drummer swing overhead around, and and uh, so restarting every day I kind of liked it because I'm in a different headspace every day like I feel like you learn so much in the first song in the first 10 minutes and then even the next day they might go from uh, roto toms to brushes so you're changing so much anyways that even if we were like tracking the same song first day didn't get second day I would have to re-put up mics but I feel like I'd have a better grasp where I'd be in a different mood where I'd want to try stuff and I would still bring half the faders down and just get it's it's more of even like a headspace thing of just getting back into it than just accepting like this is good. I'm gonna start from here. So I, I I liked it. You hear stuff differently every time you start. Like I mean I've done for some of the the mixing videos on Pure Mix. I've mixed a song that I'd already mixed and it ends up being totally different. Yeah. And it's because of gear or anything. It's just a different day and you start with a different thing. And as soon as you start, you're reacting to things and you're just reacting to different stuff. So it all happens in a different order. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, at Sun, like I said, we didn't have a, we weren't putting 40, if I had to put up 48 lines every day, I would be, <laughs> I would be not so cool about tearing down everybody, but we're only doing, you know, 12 to 14 lines total because any more than that, you're having phase shift and you're having, you know, bleed issue, all these things. So it was pretty a fast setup. And and the band, the other thing that covered you was that the band had to re 
they could leave their guitars and stuff in there, but they should put them in cases every night. So, you know, everyone's kind of tuning and re-getting their stations back. So you had the time to kind of finagle right. some stuff around. But, and, and you, you've been to Sun. So I remember uh, when you came there, uh, when you were doing that great Lost in Translation series, and you came late at night and saw the room, and I forget exactly what you said, but it was a great quote of like, uh, well, there's nothing special in here. You know, like there, there is no, uh, I mean, you knew it was special, but there's no like, well, you clap your hands and go, wow, this is incredible, you know? Yeah. yeah, I mean, like there's some rooms you walk into and you think like, holy shit, like going into Studio Two at Abbey Road just sounds like a Beatles record and going yeah. into Sound City, that's one of the best sounding rock rooms ever. And you can hear it as soon as you walk in. Yeah, and that room, I mean, how high is the ceiling? It's not that high, like no, 10 foot? Yeah, 10, 10 at the most because it has the angles. So, yeah. so it, I mean, it is it is it's an office. Yeah. It, and the, the the office, which is down the hall, was actually, that was your like echo chamber, right? You leave yeah. the door and get some echo out of it. Yeah, I love that front room. You get motorcycles too, but. <laughs> like you put the brass in there, right? Uh, I leave the door open. I kind of put them in the doorway and then blast them through. Yeah, because there was neon in there. So there's so much neon buzz that you had to like decide, right. you know, drive so, versus And if anybody who's watching this wants to see a bit of, uh, footage. There's there's a ton of footage in there from when you two went down and they mm -hmm. were cutting um, well streets of Memphis. They right? did rattle rattle and hum uh, four songs there like uh, Harlem uh, uh, when love comes to town and uh, two more I can't remember those two. Right, and that was um, oh god, what's his name? I'm I'm totally spacing. His name. Engineer worked with Johnny Cash a ton. Cowboy uh, Jack, uh, Cowboy well, Jack, and uh, Jimmy. Uh, uh, oh, Ferguson? You're talking about... Uh, yeah, yeah, Ferguson. Ferguson. yeah, he was doing it. He was an amazing musician, too, as yeah. it turned. Crazy. So anyway, so after Sun, you decided you want a complete change, so you're in Sam Phillips' other studio. Yeah, <laughs> eventually, yeah. I, uh, uh, I'd been at Sun a long time, as we said, and it was a great job, and it was one of the few jobs in this business that's a steady paycheck i mean i'm i don't have i didn't have lack of work you know what i mean like it's the it's one of the most famous studios in the world yeah i, I was working i could work every single night and i often did or wanted to spend the night at sun so i mean you, you must have gotten to work with some amazing people too yeah you got you got in in uh, this is one of the best lessons out of sun besides learning how to work in a little room and stuff was that, like I said, the engineer before me really imparted on me to treat everyone like they deserve to be there because it was everyone's dream to record there. So some nights you would have T-Bone Burnett with John Mellencamp or I had Jake Bug, who I think we worked, co-worked on some of that stuff. Um, but then you'd have a, you know, a hillbilly guy from Arkansas who thinks he's Elvis reborn and he's dyed his hair black and he's in a jumpsuit and he's singing karaoke tracks. And you, uh, I am, I am no better, you know, that music is not below me. I'm not, that's not a waste of my time because even though musically it's not amazing or he can't sing and key by you treating him like he deserved to be there, you're making his dream come true. So there was this amazing, and they're all great people, you know, I mean, everyone who comes in there was so good. So I had so much good karma from getting to work with these people and just showing them a good time and recording, even though the music maybe wasn't, you know, what you want to hear every day or every night, but then you'd have big artists in too. So it was this big kind of curve of that. Um, 
but you know that studio was always um it's right now it's a museum first the, the museum stuff comes first the recording stuff comes second and uh i also i like to push myself andrew i always have like um i always want to get better at what i do and i want to um, try new things i don't want to get pigeonholed or bored and you know working in one room for your whole life you can get anyone can get good at that you know it's your same microphone same gear blah 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 but how am i in other rooms how am i with other stuff how am i with other genres these are all things i wanted to do and uh and by 2015 i was i think i was i thought i was ready to try my hand at the independent field and i talked to you about you had some a lot of great advice over the years and and i got to work with a great producer dave cobb on some records and i had a great great lift off with margo price who i i did her her first record which was which was pretty big in the the country americana field uh, we did it at sun and it came out two years after we did it but right when i was going independent so i had a, a good like leapfrog from there and i gotta say vance powell was a really great help to me too talking talking to him about a lot of stuff he, both of you and and a lot of our mutual friends jeff neal i mean all those guys have been so helpful to me along the way it's a huge part of it, though, the community of it. And also, it's easy to tell someone else to, you know, go out on a limb when you don't have to. <laughs> but you guys had all done it, too. As you know, there's a there's times in this field where you have to make a, a leap uh, and there's no safety net. And um, uh, I just I knew if I basically uh, Dave Cobb, I had done some stuff outside the studio I, uh, before I left Sun and then. Dave Cobb asked me, I did a session for him and he liked working with me. So he asked me to do this Jason Isbell record in the studio when it let me be gone for the time to do the thing. And I knew I'd regret, uh, it, regret forever if I didn't work on this record. So yeah. I, 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 I quit, uh, my, like a great job. I loved the job. It was like, I loved being there. I didn't think ever twice really about going elsewhere. And then in like six hours, I was like, you got to do this. Uh, and so I left for that, that record and, and it's been just, um, cinnamon and roses besides this pandemic thing ever since <laughs> roses well it's it's a because i mean it feels like stability or it feels like a safety net but of course anything could have happened and if yeah. you've only got one thing and someone takes that one thing away from you well then you got nothing yeah yeah now, nothing that anyone could take away from you and it would be like oh well my career is over you just like oh well that would suck and you'd move on and fill in the gaps with the other stuff you've already got going on. Yeah, and you don't want to be known as just the sun guy or the rockabilly guy or the, you know, the genre thing. So with Margot Price, so when she came in, I mean, you told me that she hocked her wedding ring to pay for the sessions, right? Yeah, she uh, first had come down, they had played South by Southwest. I would get a lot of bands to or from South by Southwest who'd want to record it. So at, at that time we had a two hour minimum. Uh, and they called up the studio that she didn't really have, um, the band that she has now or the identity she has now. She was been certainly been playing for years and performing for years, but didn't have the, um, the draw yet. And coming back from South by, she, they called it cold, called the studio or emailed me. I can't remember and asked if they could record for two hours starting at like midnight, uh, cause they were driving back from Texas. And I said, yeah, I'll come do that. I'd love to work. And I didn't, hadn't heard any of the music or nothing. And she just blew me away, and 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 uh, the song was great. She was great. Her husband. I mean, it was just amazing. And I begged them to, when they wanted to do more recording, come back, and I would do. I'd make 
the studio as cheap as I possibly could. So I basically did that record for free. They just kind of covered the studio cost at the minimum, the lowest I could get the studio to drop the cost for. And we did Midwest Farmer's Daughter in three days. Uh, and she, like we just talked about taking a leap, she pawned her wedding ring and they sold their car to come make the record and pay for the musicians and the, all the other stuff. And then uh, for it to come out and finally got, it came out on third man. Right. Yeah, we we uh, I knew working on I knew just like she's a, a rare talent. These are, this is a, a amazing record, um, and they shopped it for I think over a year and a half and got you know thirty no letters, <laughs> and then third ran heard it and they loved it and they put it out just like it was. Um, but we did the whole thing and tracked the whole thing in three days, and then I think I mixed it in two. And so, how different was it making her second record? Uh, well, second record was the same band. She's already established on Third Man. She's got more of her. Um, I mean, she's always known who she is, but you know how it is. Once she's she's established now, she's got this thing about her. There's a there's more of a confidence there. There's a she's been in a lot more studios, a lot more live shows. The band's tighter. Um, she's got a new headspace for songs, and so we spent about eleven days making the second record. And we did at Sam Phillips Studio, which is the other studio Sam built just down the street from Sun. And yeah, I think we did it in about eleven days, and I think I still mixed it in three or so. Uh, just, just amazing records. And I love that you know eleven days. Like you really took your time. Really took your time. Yeah, we got felt like we felt like we did. You know, felt like wow. But <laughs> um, uh, that that one was really special too because we had like Willie, Willie Nelson. We got to go down to Texas, and he sang on it. And wow and stuff but um but yeah it was uh she she's still very humble and still the same down-to-earth artist you know so it wasn't like um dealing with the egomaniac or something on the second album well look i got two more things i well three things actually we have to talk about and then we can get to a few questions because we got to stop on the the hours so the first thing is you got the key to the city in yeah. memphis yeah. now first you'd think like oh memphis is small town but memphis as to get the key to the city as someone involved in music, that's pretty badass. So yeah. what happened? What was the deal? They didn't see that I had a couple felonies. So that was, that was cool. <laughs> no, I don't have any felonies. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, um, that's all kind of a whirlwind. Um, uh, the, there's a great other engineer in town, Boo Mitchell, and we both won Grammys the same year. We actually have the same birthday too, but he won for Uptown Funk. Uptown Funk was done in Memphis. Oh, let's say. Different birth mothers. Let's just clear yeah, that. Different birth mothers, okay. but soul, soul brothers. Uh, yeah. uh, and then I won for engineering Jason Isbell. So they had a big party for us. And I, I think more because of Boo, because Boo's such a celebrity, and I'm more of like a monk, like a troll in the town. But um, uh, they're celebrating. I got to tag along with Boo, and they gave us the key to the city. Which, being the Memphis. Um, fanatic that I am really is one of the coolest things ever. Do you have it? Is it in your house? Uh, it's somewhere around here. Yeah. I, uh, I think it's still in a closet. I moved a year ago. So, you know, everything's still in boxes. <laughs> All right. Two more things. You actually got to mix a bunch of Elvis tracks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've done, uh, uh, I got to remix some Elvis stuff for an album that's out called Way Down the Jungle Room, which is stuff he cut in the Jungle Room. Uh, and then we did um, a lot of live concerts from 72, and we just did this 11-CD box set from 69, which was really cool because it was 8-track um, with a really funky band. And then there's um, a couple more projects coming out I can't talk about, but 
Yeah, the guys at Sony Legacy um, reached out through a mutual friend and and came down and and uh, got to record or mix this Elvis stuff, and it was just like a a dream come true, uh, you know, to get to solo his voice and and uh, hear all his stuff. And big shout out to RX because uh, Elvis has like eight gold rings on his fingers that clack on the RE15 while he's singing all the time, and that saved my butt a lot but uh it, it, yeah just work on his stuff it's really heavy uh, and sometimes a lot of these projects are really long like you you've worked on some of these big live you know multiple cd box sets where you know two months you're on the same thing and you know there'd be like the fourth fifth weekend you're kind of going what you know what am i where am i at who am i and then you solo and elvis is are you here elvis playing through the hallway and you go man this is cool you know that's amazing and so just in case people don't know, the Jungle Room was his home studio at Graceland. Right? It was just like a den uh, of this like kind of tiki-esque furniture. And uh, he got tired of recording in Nashville. So RCA bought a bread truck, uh, turned it into a little mobile rig, and drove it down to Memphis and ran wires into the Jungle Room. So the drummer's just sitting by the couch, the piano they rolled there. there. Elvis sang on the stairwell. <laughs> And they just recorded and they had big hits out there. Moody Blue, Danny Boy. Yeah, I was about to ask. So it, it isn't just like those were demos. I mean, there was a bunch of his records. Got yeah, a bunch of records in 76 were all Jungle Room sessions. And was Sam still involved at that point? Or no, Sam had to sell Elvis's contract in 1955, four, 55, uh, to RCA to, to help keep the studio afloat. So after that, he he was, they still talked on the phone and were friends, but he didn't produce Elvis. He so. worked with him. Shows mm -mm. how I am. I shouldn't. It was Felton. Felton Jarvis was Elvis's long time. You know, Elvis really produced himself too. You know, and that's what's cool is, you know, when we think of Elvis, and he died in '77, but we think of '70s Elvis as overweight, on drugs, kind of over it. But you listen to stuff from '76. He's directing the band. He's like, when they're not fast enough, he's getting onto them. He was fully present, fully involved, and in singing his butt off. So wow. Amazing. I love when you can hear that stuff, the direction. There's a great, um, I don't even know what it's called because I listened to it on an airplane of all things, but it's uh, Miles and it was Miles, Miles. And it was all the take up to the album takes. So they'd start the track like Footprints and it was totally different and not happening at all. And you'd stop people, say like two or three words and then, and you just heard it come together, but you heard him directing it and to hear Elvis putting the band together and making them do what was then something that's iconic and everybody recognizes it, but to hear what it came out of must have been amazing. Yeah, it's so cool to see him and, and all the session guys are pros, you know, to sort of see them kind of even their first takes are could be final take, you know, they, but then they just all find the the pocket to sit in and they keep playing less and less and it just gets to be the thing, you know. Right. So, all right, one other thing I want you to talk about because it's ridiculously cool is the series you did for Amazon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Amazon reached out to me about, they wanted to start a new series, of, a playlist series called Produced By. And um, they asked if I would be the first one, which I'm assuming 100 people said no or something until they got to me on the list. But I, it, I was honored to get to do it. And I got to pick out artists I wanted to work with. And luckily, they all, thankfully, they all said yes. So I got to do a track with Al Green. And that was um, about as surreal as it gets. He hasn't put any music out in 
15 years, I think. So to get him in the studio was incredible. Uh, and then we got to work with John Prime, who is a big hero and become a dear friend of mine. And uh, Margot, I, I wouldn't do it without Margot. And William Bell, who's a Stax legend. And this um, great artist that Margot hit me to, Aaron Ray, was the last one we did. And there'll, there'll be some more around the, the um, corner as soon as we get through this crazy times we're in. There, Hopefully right. Amazon will call me back. Yeah. Oh, they'll call you back. <laughs> uh, Mark's going to post them, but you sent me two playlists, which is awesome. So 10 tracks that you worked on, but 10 tracks that are an inspiration to you. And I was just curious, what is the most recent of those tracks? Oh, God. I mean, like, is there anything even from the 70s? Uh, probably. Yeah, I'm not looking at it in front of me, but it's all like 67. Well, and for the all the people in this peer mix, I was going to put on Low Roar, which Andrew Sheps has mixed and, and done a beautiful job because that, that records that he's put out are just blow me away. But I didn't want to embarrass the man because I've already asked him enough questions about it and talked to him enough about it. But Low Roar, check out Low Roar if you want to hear Andrew Sheps at his it's, finest. It's awesome. I mean, obviously, the work you've done is insane. Jason Isbell, Margo Price, Sean Rowe, Don Bryant, Nikki. I mean, just. And Elvis, of course, is on there. But then your inspiration playlist is awesome. And I love that the Elvis track on there, I'm just looking at the list, that's why I'm mm -hmm. to the side, um, is, is a mono take nine of Blue Moon. And it doesn't sound great. And it's, you know, it's not like, ooh, this is a mono, like the mono Beatles records or something. It, it doesn't sound like the take necessarily, but it is amazing. Yeah. He never released Blue Moon, and that's one of the. If I could, I never got to meet Sam Phillips, but if I could, I would ask him why he never put out Blue Moon. And I get it, rock and roll is this new young thing. I'm not going to put out this dreary drudge thing. But my neck hair stands up every time I hear that track, and the in the the echo is turned up so much. But it's like, I'm sure it was cool, 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 wrong, 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 and then at eight percent wet, it was awesome. <laughs> which I would have never gotten that far, you know? Uh, it is a great thing that when you push something, it's it's that whole thing, like, you know, the, the stupid quote about jazz, like you, you play a wrong note once, it's wrong, play it yeah. twice, jazz. But it, it's like, if you really push something, you can sort of reconfigure the universe to where it makes sense. And it's a great production thing. Yeah. You go too far with effects are too bright or too nasty or too quiet or too loud, you know, yeah. it's great. I picked the inspiration, if, if anyone clicks on it, are a lot of things that I um, just, I still, my neck hair stands up still every time I, I uh, listen to them, you know, like that one. I still get the same, you know, I've heard it a thousand times and this or that, but it's still those tracks that just, there's something about them. And then half of them, like we talked about in the green room where just, I wish my drums would sound like that. Holy cow. <laughs> it's hard pan mono drums some of them it's like kick and snare on opposite sides and yeah and just and they're all pretty much i mean americana roots stuff basically mm -hmm. but that from you know that that sort of recording technique is not peculiar to that type of music there's a one of my favorite pink floyd tracks ever recorded is kick on the left snare on the right like yeah just that sort of um I don't know, it's because people were still figuring it out because it was new, so they just tried everything. And I think, and I'm talking about just stereo in general. Yeah. Now, you know, stereo is just an obvious thing, so people don't really mess with it too much. It's like everybody sort of knows what the framework's supposed to be and they stick to it. But yeah, 
it's like I tried so many times to do a drums all the way on one side mix, but I don't hear drums in a way that allows them to be on one side. They're always too big and too loud, and you got to kind of put them in the middle. But it's a, it's a great way to force yourself to restructure the track because you've got to change the importance of the instrument to be able to put it on one side. Yeah, there, there's a, I have probably, um, I don't know, every fourth record or so I can get away with pan drums and and it's never whenever i'm trying to do it as like a oh it'd be cool to do this it never works out the last time i can remember was this uh, iron and wine record i did that just was released last year and sam the singer and guitar player is this intricate acoustic part it's amazing and it's the drummer is playing almost the same kind of thing and so having and, and he played and sang at the same time so you know Initially, you're thinking I'm going to put the drums, vocal, and acoustic all up the gut, but then you couldn't really pick out the rhythms of the acoustic or the drums in a cool way. So I've slammed the put the drums on the left and put the acoustic on the right. And of course, I was getting drum bleed into some of that stuff, and um, I was able to get a nice stereo image of the drums feeling like they're sw swooshing around, but not right. grabbing your attention too much to the left or right. Because I know exactly what you mean. What happens when you try to pan that stuff you're moving so much energy to one side uh, you need something to counteract it on the other side yeah yeah and you can't let the drums be the only important rhythmic thing because yeah it's work and you know it's not like we don't have good examples of people doing it i just can't figure yeah it out. for me no me too but I, i'm a big big hard panner i love the hard panning yeah yeah and it works great when you get it right and you get mm -hmm. it right I just don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> oh, you did some polls too. What the hell? Matt's full of shit, 100%. Um, yes. Well, it, visiting Sun Studios is on a lot of people's bucket lists. People love Bleed. That's good. Yeah, yeah. And your favorites, favorite Elvis decade, the 50s, getting a big, big boost there. Well, I think you need to prove everybody wrong with all these. These concerts from the seventies. That's cool. It's changing in real time. Technology is wild, man. Wow. Yeah, it, is. it is. It's kind of scary, but really, really good. I mean, look, the fact that we can do this to be in this crazy situation. I mean, the last time the world was like this was 1918. Yeah. So 102 years ago, people were not doing video conferences. Mm -mm. You're dying and not knowing what the hell was going on. Well, and even just, you know, um, we've been friends for all just that we get to catch up. I mean, we've done this a couple of times without the voyeurs, but, <laughs> but just getting to stay in touch, you know, through, through all this is, is so great. And, and to get yeah, to watch Vance and then tomorrow. And yeah, people are, are being really good about reaching out too, which I think is good. And if yeah. you're, if you're home and you're not reaching out to people, do it, it, it can feel almost depressing in a way at the beginning because it's not quite as good as actually seeing the people, but it's way better than not seeing them at all. Yeah. Yeah. The advice is to just make yourself way too busy. In to, fact, I will be providing Andrew's cell phone number when this is all um, done so you can all reach out to him. I think you'll find <laughs> you want to curate some questions in here? Because I, I don't want to. Let's see the people, Mark. Absolutely. How you guys doing? All right. Hey, All right. So we got quite a few questions going on here. This is super interesting, guys. Thank you for doing this. So a lot of great questions happening in the chat room and uh, also in our 
submission thing here. So, um, Andrew, the top question, um, I'm going to actually ask it because there's 39 upvotes for it. And uh, somebody had a good point that a lot of people are working on headphones right now. Yep. So I did already tell the chat room that we have a video coming soon with you discussing the whole process. But do you have maybe a couple quick questions or quick comments about yeah. how they can survive in this? I want this to be more like a holistic thing. And also it's about Matt, I mean, but it's yep. also the first week and we don't know what the hell we're doing. But I'm going to go and be a geek on one of the other webinars sometime later this week or next week or whatever. And then that's fine. So, but just the mixing on headphones thing, it's it's tricky. You've got to make sure that the stuff translates. And the only way to do that is to check your mixes elsewhere and things like that. But what I love about it is that it is 100% controlled and repeatable. You're wearing your studio on your head. So if you can get around the actual process of mixing in headphones, which some people really can't. Um, and I never, I hadn't even tried it. I didn't used to check stuff on headphones in the studio. I just worked on speakers because that's what I did. But I was traveling and I needed to do some mixing. So I started working on headphones and it was long enough before I got back to the speakers that I started to get used to it. So it does take some time and you've got to find a pair of headphones that work for you. I mean, I use cheap, bright Sony's, um, but they make sense to me in the stuff generally translates, not always, you know, I, I still get into trouble sometimes, but the idea that you're wearing your studio on your head, because otherwise you got to buy speakers. And obviously the more you can spend, not the more you can spend, but the better speakers you can get for the way you hear stuff, the better off you're going to be. But then you're at the mercy of the room and you're at the mercy much more of the monitor section you're using, what you use to turn the volume up and down makes a much bigger difference on speakers than it does on headphones. You need a decent headphone amp, but you can kind of get away with a little bit more. I think because headphones are so much more efficient, you're not driving that much voltage, but you've got to have a super clean monitor chain when, to get good speakers and your room's got to be good. And sometimes that's just not possible. So if you can work on it, and get to the point where you can actually hear the problems on the headphones that you discover when you listen somewhere else, then you're on your way to doing it. And I think it's great. I, Matt, you, do you ever work on headphones? Do you work in, on headphones at all? I, actually, I've been trying with this with this um, pandemic thing. I brought home like an Apollo twin and my old crusty laptop and and I busted out some headphones and like some little crappy kef speaker well not crappy actually like them. these little kef speakers and was kind of trying things and and just to back up what andrew's saying it's all confidence i mean um all of our favorite records that are pre-1970 were done on a altec speaker that doesn't really go above 6k and doesn't go below you know 200 hertz and the low end is insane and the top end's great and you know all the records you look at what he was listening on and there's no way he heard how amazing those things sound yeah yeah, I mean, like Buddy Holly, you know, some of that stuff is so hi-fi. I'll Take You There by the Staple Singers, I think, is one of the greatest mixes of all time. And it was done on an MCI tape machine through, you know, JBL 70 speakers that we would all laugh at. But it sounds insane. And if they had barefoot monitors or whatever today, who knows how it would have come out, you know? So yeah. it's just getting confidence and trusting yourself. Um, and it's about not doing too much, I think, because those yeah. records, all about getting the sound in the room with the microphones yeah. and then balancing. It wasn't mm -hmm. about audio trickery. It was just yeah. about performance and balance. Yeah. yeah, for sure. 
cool. Um, let's do let's do another one. Uh, let's see. So Matt, I'm going to ask you this one. Uh, what is your strategy or approach on obtaining objectivity? Let me Google what objectivity means first. <laughs> um, words. Uh, actually, this is something I felt like I've gotten a lot better at over the mm -hmm. years, and it's um, uh, I I've had the the luxury of, especially at Sun, working for hundreds of different producers, hundreds of different engineers, and even still this day, I I produce, but I still love to work with other producers uh, mm -hmm. and engi just engineer and and the one thing you can you know you watch when you're just the engineer is you can track something and go man this sounds great and then you know it's the producer's job to go we're going to do overdubs or we're going to add this or we're not going to do this or that vocal's greater and you watch them make decisions on the record that you may not even agree with and i've watched um hands-on producers or hands-on other engineers that i've worked on something would maybe take it too far or not enough or do it just perfectly um you know we all have different tastes but uh that was a ghost knocking my headphone out uh, to tell me to stop talking. But um, but but I say all that not from a place of I'm better than these other guys or, or below. I just mean that you can watch when it's out of your hands where it goes, and you can and I've I've you remember in those moments like I think it sounded better on the the first mix they sent or the first mastering they sent and not master four, which became the final one or this, and you kind of remember those moments. So now when I'm the only person in the chair, I try and I, as I'm recording the mix, first of all, when I'm recording, I try and make it sound done as I'm recording it. Cause there's something about being in the moment that I can never get back. And like Andrew and I said, you could record it and go, this is perfect. And then I wake up the next day and because of whatever happened or whatever headspace I'm in, I feel like this is why did I record it like this? This sounds terrible yeah. to me. Uh, so I try and retain those moments. That's what's great about Pro Tools is you can save a mix, you can save a rough mix. I save those moments and I constantly go back and check myself. And every plugin has a bypass. We can, you know, it's always going back and going, this feels not like it did five minutes ago when I was enjoying this. So I, then I go back and bypass. And just being really conscious of when it felt good and knowing when you've gone too far because on the computer, it's so easy to go way past where it was and then you keep adding plugins, trying to get back to where you get where you were before you had the plugins on there. So I hope yeah. that helps. But but remembering, just remember when it always felt good, and remember where that was, and save as. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, because awesome. the feeling part is sometimes really hard to hold on to because it can. Like I remember when we first met was at it was K-pop. It was um, what was it called? Uh, Hot luck. Hot luck conference thing, and there was a guy who was doing a mastering demo. And he had, I think it was kind of a jazz track. And so there's a little bit of an intro. And then there was the snare hit. And then the band kicked in. Mm. And I remember he was playing the unmastered one. And I was sitting out there. And that snare hit came. And it was way too loud. And it was awesome. It was yeah. just, all the hairs stood up. And then he played his master. And it sounded way better. But that snare hit was like, mm, it just wasn't that good anymore. And yeah. I think it's trying to remember the feeling of, when it made you like, ah, and making sure that you don't lose that. Because it's really easy while mixing, especially big productions and things, to completely lose that because you've got to sonically do all this stuff and make everything fit. Um, but it's it's the stuff that's not right that surprises you, that makes you feel amazing while you're listening. So yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Like every time I first am tracking something, I'm a little bit bolder with distortion or reverbs or, or the snare's a little too loud or bass is a little too loud and it's killer. And then I go back and I'm mixing. I put everything in its place and I start taming stuff and I go, this doesn't feel right. And I go back and listen to my rough mix. Oh, you had the reverb up five more dB and the bass pan to the left with a fuzz or something. And so just going back to that, that first thought of what you had, the emotion yeah. of it, the emotion of it. Awesome. Um, okay, guys. So uh, Pyramix got a new toy, so we're gonna try something out. So, uh -oh. all right. Um, so here's what I want to do. I'm gonna ask Matt another question, <laughs> and while while Matt answering this question, it's not gonna shoot like, water out of Andrew. <laughs> it might. Yeah, Andrew doesn't know, but we actually installed a bucket above his head, <laughs> some stuff. So, <laughs> a purple bucket on your hair, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it's coming for you. It's it's about to happen. Yeah. I feel, like, I feel like Mark got hair and makeup before this, and we didn't, Andrew. He looks <laughs> glorious. I'm all greasy. You know, oh, I'm, I'm gray and shaggy. Crazy filter. Uh, okay, all right. So let's let's do this thing. So I'm going to ask Matt a question. And while I'm doing that, I want you guys to come up with a question for Matt and submit it in the ask a question thing. But when you do it, um, I'm going to bring one of you guys on camera with us so you can ask Matt your question yourself. So submit it in the ask a question thing, then I'm gonna select one of those and we'll bring you on camera and you can ask Matt your question. So uh, while they're coming up with a question, Matt, um, what do you do to kind of keep your palate fresh in between records or even during records? And um, I mostly mean that from a sense of uh, how much music are you listening to? Are you like, are you pulling up records constantly and just listening to music all the time to find new inspiration? Or do you find like you're working so much, sometimes that falls off the, off the tracks what do you what do you do for that that's a good question i do a lot of up until this thing i pretty much have, have was working every day straight from i think august i just did records back to back without a my day off would be driving to the next city to to work or so and i it, this is honestly this is the thing i love to do the most this is kind of my hobby and my job and really the only thing i have forward to look look forward to <laughs> so i just i love it so much that to me it it never really feel for most part it doesn't feel like work and i'm excited every day I'm, I'm grateful every day i get to work get up and work um i don't listen to a whole lot of um new music sometimes because i don't want to steal or copy from stuff and, and that goes for old music too and, and and as andrew and you know um when you've got two or three projects out while you're working on the next one, you've got to be listening to the masters of the last one and trying. And that's always the hard part. It's like once I'm doing one person's record, I don't want to listen to other stuff I've worked on because I feel like I'm cheating. Like I got caught at the club with another gal or something. And so I try and I just try and be have tunnel vision on that. And I've gotten into a podcast more lately where it's just kind of uh, uh, I, I feel like I cleanse my palate other ways by, you know, going trying to go on walks or fish or, do things and then when new music finds me when i when i do click on it, then i get really inspired and, and i love at the end of the day maybe listen to a bunch of music on this in the speakers in the studio but it it definitely isn't like when i was 15 i was just consuming record after record anymore mm -hmm. um, so right, right. Recently, it doesn't have to be recent music but anything you heard for the first time recently that kind of blew you away um oh crap that's kind of <laughs> I've never heard a record in my uh, life. I think of an 
I, I really love Light in the Attic. Uh, they do a bunch of really amazing reissues. And there's this guy, Jim Sullivan. This is not new, so I apologize. But uh, um, he had done a record with the Wrecking Crew and uh, got lost somewhere in the shuffle. But they put out a record of his demos. And it's amazing. It's just him and acoustic guitar. And uh, talk about recording technique. The guitar has got like little wow and flutter and warble to it where it's like kind of pitchy and it sounds incredible. It's like how I want every acoustic to sound right now. And um, well, I, I watched some of the Grammys and, uh, you know, Billie Eilish tore it up and I heard some of her stuff, but I made a point to go listen to her afterwards. And I was pretty blown away by a lot of the, the writing and the production and stuff on those records, just from listening to that. Um, and to tag in Andrew Sheps one more time, maybe my favorite listening experience ever was at this potluck uh, where he played me, low roar and we were in a you guys haven't been a potluck but they're like hotel rooms so i don't want it to sound like weird like me and andrew in a hotel room alone but we were in a hotel room alone uh, i was drinking absinthe snow cone he was i forget what you were drinking but uh but we listened to low roar top to bottom and and this was a, a audio conference and people were done for the day and all and it speaks to how great the record is and what Andrew did, because all these people were kind of going from gear rooms to gear rooms just to talk gear and get drunk. And they came in our room and just started listening. And by the time we had finished listening to the record, there was probably 80 people in there. And this low roar record. Uh, but there were quite a few. It was a good crowd. It, it yeah. blew me away. And Andrew was right there. So I could like every time I heard something amazing, I'd like, did you just remove all the high pass, low pass off the acoustic guitar and the chorus? Yeah, I did that. Just it was it was one of the coolest listening experiences I've ever had was was low roar with Andrew. Um, so I feel like I, even though that was years ago, I, I really would like to highlight that. Awesome. Which uh which low roar record was that? It was the O record. Zero. 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 Cool. I'm gonna post and, the link and, to that. In Tennessee, we call it O. Oh. <laughs> that the first album was just called Low Roar. And we were going to put out the second record, and Ryan said, "Man, I don't want to call the record anything. I just want them all to be called Low Roar." And so I said, the problem is, then it's going to be like with Weezer, where it's called Weezer, but then in parentheses it's the Blue Album or there's something. And I said, and they're, and they're just going to make up a name for you. So I just said, "Okay, we'll don't call it anything. It's called Zero. Wasn't so, that, right. Wasn't that the one that you started on headphones too? The first one. That yeah. Headphones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all of them actually because of like where i was like oh started on headphones because i was working on that while i was down in france doing the mix of the master seminar and then yeah so a lot of those records because i end up doing a lot of production on those records so i'm not like sitting down to mix it i gotta live with it for a while and then i'm doing like brass or strings or i play bass which i'm not even a good bass player whatever but so i end up spending a lot of time just living with it and kind of tweaking on my laptop or whatever it, so that's a different experience than most other records I work on. Yeah. I see this is why I don't like to listen to other people's records because they're all way better than me, Mark. So I listen to that and just go, oh my God. <laughs> what am I doing? I can't, can't, can't compete with that. Just turn it in. <laughs> so you're going to pull some magic now. Let's do it. Uh, all right. Let's see here. Let's, uh, well, we got we got a funny one here. You guys want to do funny or serious? Funny haha or funny weird? Uh, probably both. Perfect. Let's, let's try it out. All right, let's see if uh, he's available here. It's going to be a good one, I think. And can't tell if he's coming on, so I'll uh, oh, let's wait and see. 
It's not well, that weird guy Fab who's been following me around, is it? No, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we don't we don't let him on. Um, <laughs> so let's do while we're waiting. Oh, he's coming. Here we go. All right. Awesome. He's going to be on here. His name is Matthew. I think you might know him. So that's putting me on the with uh, totally face blind, man. I, if unless I'm back in the same room that I last saw a person, I don't recognize yeah. any. Right, right. Yeah, this is um, his name's Matt. I think it's for Matt, and uh, it has to do with something kind of personal. We'll see. Oh, great! I'll make <laughs> it. <laughs> I think my internet about to run out. My AOL is about to run out. Nice. Oh, let's see, Matt. Are you there? Yeah. Hey, Matthew. How's it going? Good. 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 Okay. I'm so not you sure had. This is working. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it's working. Um, so okay. you you had something that you posted in the chat room uh, for Matt. I did. You wanna... I was uh, once in the recording studio with Matt, and we were listening to music, and he was saying, "You know what's sexy to me?" And he said. <laughs> sitting on my couch eating a bucket of chicken and I wanted to know if you still felt that way. Oh yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> I just did it. Uh, what's today? I did it Wednesday. I think. No, Friday. <laughs> Sexy time Friday. I'm really enjoying this guys. It's great. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. It's good to hear from you, Burbis. You too, buddy. What, uh, what I recommend you guys everyone works with Matt if they can. He's a genius. Yes. Uh, now, are you eating fried chicken right now? No, I'm eating salmon. Oh, um, that's close. That's a close, close. second. That's, it's the fried. <laughs> All right. Uh, what record did you guys work on? We worked, we worked on, on a, a Bell. Yeah, Bell Rosco record. Bell Rosco record in Nashville at this guy Andre's studio, the Bomb Shelter, and Andre was one of the coolest engineers I've gotten to work with. He could. <laughs> man a mci tape machine and punch in matt matthew and his sister both sing and he could punch in and out of two vocal tracks while telling me a joke and man auto locator and not mess up once uh, my heart was racing but he would do it <laughs> that's amazing yeah well, those, you guys started a bromance yeah we definitely session. did definitely yeah. did good fun awesome awesome well thanks for coming on matt <laughs> thanks mate all right we'll see you are we going to have a fried, is fried chicken sexy poll? Because that I think like that that's exactly what needs to happen. Um, all right. One more question from, uh, from the live room here. And that's, uh, do you have any recommendations or small tips you would give regarding drums or vocals? I feel they're the most difficult thing for mi starting mixers and producers. So I'm going to narrow that down a little bit. And um, Matt, you have some pretty cool ways uh, that you go about recording drums. Do you have any recommendations for people for that? Um, yeah, I mean, it depends uh, totally uh, on the genre, on the room, on the music, on the song. Uh, there are some songs I put no mics on the drums. There's some songs I put two mics on the drums. There's some songs I put six mics on the drums. Um, but basically, less is more, especially with drums. You know, uh, I equate the drums. To, it's just like an acoustic guitar or piano. Uh, you don't mic every string on the piano. You don't mic every string individually on the acoustic. You, you capture it as a whole. <laughs> And uh, um, I, I, uh, I've done a cool video with Pure Mix that'll be out soon where you'll kind of see more of this in depth. But the, I, I 
the less I put stuff on the drums, the bigger I can get it to sound. So I really start with a kick and overhead and get the image really as tight. I'm talking about mic, uh, recording now, not mixing, but uh, get get it sounding like the drums I want to hear with kick and overhead. And then I will supplement things, whether I'm going for an effect, like a fantasy sound, blow it up stuff, mm -hmm. or, or adding to that. But um, I just found the more times I put more stuff on there, the washier, the phasier it gets. I hear uh, stuff. And uh, I, I, for a long time, like most of us, I'd EQ each of those drums individually if I felt like they needed something. Uh, and I, I started feeling like I hear EQ, it, to me, is just shifting the phase, uh, mm -hmm. right? So I now EQ the drums as one, mo usually it's mono, so I'll put the drums to one channel and I EQ the drums as a whole. And it's pretty amazing if you guys mess with that. You know, you can still get individual heads or parts of the kick on EQ without affecting others, like 60 hertz. You're not really having anything else in 60 hertz except the kick drum, really. And just doing a quarter of a dB on a drum bus will do a lot more than if you were to get individually on the kick drum and add 3 dB or 4 dB. It's, it can almost feel the same with way less maneuvering, uh, maneuvering of it. Uh, you know, in 1.5K, you can bring out great parts of the snare while also bringing out the, uh, the attack of the kick. So uh, I would try doing as minimal as you can, see how great it sounds, and then try and do some of these more things and putting more plug guns on individual stuff. But really tune your ear to hearing phase shift. I think that's really important just in music in general. So when you start adding plugins, you can hear the difference. Uh, there's some plugins that have phase shift just by adding the plugin onto the thing. Uh, and so if you're not identifying that right off the bat, you might be digging yourself a bigger hole. That's awesome. There's a great, uh, well, the, the whole third video advances that went up this week. He's getting drum sounds and he starts with, he, he listens to the room first, I think just because he wants to hear it because it's awesome. Yeah. And it's overheads and then kick and then snare. And then, you know, he does other things and he, and it's a great sort of progression through the drum kit, but it is absolutely built from that building block. Whereas I, I mean, if I only had six mics on the drums, I would freak out. Like that's mm -hmm. not, I just, I just spent too many years having to have too much control but not being in control in control of the session if you know what i mean so yeah. i gotta work really fast but i know like especially tracking for rick rubin or some of these guys like you that song could go in any direction later on and if i'm not covering everything it's a problem but then you're not committing to anything yeah and it's really flexible but it's not anything in particular until later which is a hey. bit of a drag Andrew brought up two good points too, and that's is it, you know it, this all can change if you're the producer and the engineer, or if you're just the engineer and there's a producer, uh, that might change how I will still start with this, my same drum chain, but I might add some tom mics or something just so they feel, or for a mixer later mess with it, have those, and then second that Vance Powell is a bad mofo when it comes to getting drum sounds. I will be watching that peer mix too. <laughs> oh yeah. That on the Rival Sons stuff that you tracked for Dave Cobb was that a standard drum setup or did you minimalize and how'd that go? Dave, a ton of mics either though, right? D Dave, uh, Dave's got a uh, he's a very hands on for a producer, which I think is awesome because it's like we can tag team stuff or he could do stuff and I get to learn or what, what, however, which way you want to put it. And he can it's so much easier to vocalize when he can go. He hears great, um, so he'll go like, "I want this mic on the overhead because this is what I'm going for." But that Rival Suns record was actually 
pretty much we wanted to do the, he wanted to do the Glenn Johns technique. So we did the Glenn Johns technique and part of the records in a booth, part of the records in, um, live floor. But, uh, but it was pretty much all, uh, just uh, kick overhead and side on that record. Right. Awesome, man. So we probably, we got to call this, but yeah. Matt, awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for being the Guinea pig. Thank you. I, Andrew Sheps is one of my heroes. So this is like a double treat for me. And Mark, Mark, you're right, right there behind him, Bubba. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Two studs. Yeah. Awesome. Really, really great. And so we'll be back next week and just do the same thing. In fact, Matt, you want to just come back next week? We'll just I will, I will peek, peek in for sure. All right. Awesome, man. Cool. Guys, thank you so much for doing this, Matt. Thank you for everything. Uh, like Matt mentioned, we do have a start to finish coming with him coming very, very soon. That is done at the amazing Sam Phillips recording in Memphis, Tennessee. You get to see Matt's entire process. So that's going to be really fun. Um, yeah. So tomorrow we'll be back here. Bye-bye.